Hello, I'm Dan Jurgen, and welcome to Sear Week Conversations presented by IHS Market. I'm very pleased today to be talking with Richard Haas, who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and one of the world's leading thinkers on foreign affairs and international relations. Uh, Richard is the author of a new book called uh, The World, uh, a, a Brief Introduction. And uh, so therefore, in the spirit of that, I will give him a very brief introduction. Richard is uh, very experienced working as a practitioner in foreign affairs over many years. He's been president of the council now for uh, a number of years, and the council is the leading think tank on international affairs in the world. Richard, welcome. Glad to have you here at Sarah Week Conversations. Great to be with you. Great to be back at Sarah. Well, thank you. Yes, exactly. Last time you were there, we were uh, in person. This time it's a, a virtual Richard, I thought I would start with a, a, a big question, and then I want to turn to your book and then turn to where we are in the world and where we're going. Uh, the big question, you say this is a unique moment in history and that people don't really understand why it's unique and what it means. I'd like to ask you, what do you have in mind? Yeah, I mean, some things are not unique. For example, the fact that you have geopolitical competition a revival of great power rivalry. That's, that's the stuff of history, Dan, as you know, better than anybody. But I'd say a couple of things are uh, unique. One is the degree of dissemination or distribution of power. This is an era in which power has been distributed widely, power in all of its manifestations, uh, military, economic, cultural, political, what have you. And it's in more hands. And by the way, not all those hands are the hands of nation states. Could be corporations, could be foundations, uh, elements of our civil society, could be you know, various companies. What's so interesting is it's so distributed. And then second of all, this is an era of history that I believe is increasingly defined by global challenges. Essentially, the manifestations of globalization. We're living with one now, infectious disease that became a pandemic but also obviously climate change, proliferation, terrorism, uh, cyberspace and uh, the digital domain, uh, a global monetary uh, order, trade on a vast international scale. All of these are, are manifestations of globalization. All of these present all sorts of challenges. So to me, what makes this era of history so interesting, challenging, uh, difficult and different is that in addition to the normal stuff of history, the geopolitical, again, we've got widely distributed capacity in a wide set of hands uh, at a time we've also facing the, these global uh, challenges. And in every one of these cases, there's, there's a large gap between the, the scale of the challenge and the degree of international resolve to, and consensus to meet it. And that's what makes the, this period of history, I would argue, so different. So uh, it's also obviously one of the reasons you decided to write the world, but uh, what, uh, what prompted you to want to take on such a big subject, although admittedly uh, not in a long book? Look, I'm sorry I had to do it or I felt compelled to do it. I wish it were not necessary. Uh, the reason the, at 36,000 feet, the reason I thought it was important or necessary to do was simply I thought that so few people in my country, in the United States, but also around the world, had a real appreciation for why the world matters, how it affects their lives, and in turn, what their 
what they or their company or their country or their government does and how that affects the, the world at the same time. So I began with uh, that, that I thought that people didn't see the dots or connect the dots uh, in ways. And then I think there's a bias to that. If you don't understand why the world matters, uh, you're much more prone to not paying attention to, to it, to, to support policies that like isolationism, uh, essentially to discount the importance of, uh, of international things, even though we live in a moment where they're arguably more important than ever. I, I've already mentioned the disease. We just marked, what, the 19th uh, anniversary of 9-11, where terrorists trained in Afghanistan killed nearly 3,000 people in a day here in the uh, United States. We've got these terrible fires and floods in this and other countries. Why? Because of the growing effects of uh, climate change. So you wouldn't think it were necessary, but it is. And then here in the United States, but also other places, it turns out that you can get a perfectly good education at the high school or university level. But in most high schools, there's no courses on uh, on the world, on the the international scene. And in virtually you know, all colleges and universities in the United States, those courses are offered in the curriculum, but they're not required as a condition of graduation. So you can graduate from the Stanford's and Harvard's and Yale's of the world, which are fantastic universities. The only problem is you can graduate from those campuses and be functionally illiterate when it comes to, to think global. Yeah, so I was gonna ask you, so, but this book, I mean, by the way, it's a, it's a very uh, clear, fast-paced read. It's not a textbook by any means, but it's not just aimed at students, is it? I mean, it's aimed no. at the public. No, and I wasn't, when I said um, that people aren't connecting the dots, that's true of young people, it's true of middle-aged people, it's true of people of our generation. First of all, if you're our generation and you study these issues when you're in school, that's, that's half a century ago, sorry to say. And you know, there was something going on then called the Cold War. Uh, climate change wasn't on the uh, agenda. The internet didn't yet exist. So even if you studied these things 50 years ago, uh, what you study is irrelevant. Or if you're like me, I won't speak for you, Dan, you probably forgot a lot of what you studied. But also, regardless of what you did 50 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago, the world's dynamic. If you watch the news at night in the United States and many countries, you don't get an awful lot of coverage of the world. On the internet, there's tons of information. The problem is there's tons of stuff that's inaccurate. But I don't know about your internet. Mine doesn't come with little yellow notes saying, read this, ignore that. So you know, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of the things he said is that uh, a democracy requires an informed citizenry that you need the people, the citizens of a society to hold their elected and appointed representatives to account, to ask the tough questions. How can you ask the tough questions? How can you ask the right questions if you're not informed? So I wrote this really for people of any and, and every age, uh, because again, we're also affected uh, by what's going on beyond our borders. Well, let me, I'm, I was struck in the book, I wanna to get to the current issues of today but I was struck that you did spend the first part doing history. And are there two mm -hmm. or three in brief form lessons of history that stand out for the present day that come from writing that first part of the book? Well, a big part of it is that things in the world don't just work out by themselves. History is, uh, there's almost nothing about history. Like you've written some fantastic history books. 
I find there's almost nothing that's inevitable. People matter. Ideas matter. So when I look at the present and future, this is both a source of uh, relief and concern. The good news is things can still turn out okay. The bad news is if they do, it's not just going to happen automatically. Uh, the natural state of things is, is not order. The second thing is, particularly for the last 75 years of history, the principal, the principal agent of promoting order in the world has been the United States, beginning with World War II, the creative aftermath to World War II, the Cold War, and the rest. What worries me now is the United States, in many ways, a lot of Americans are tired of this role. Why has that happened, do you think? Uh, I think, again, they don't see the connections, don't understand how the world affects them, about how American foreign policy has affected the world. And by the way, I think it's the cost-benefit ratio of our involvement in the world has been remarkable. But again, you wouldn't know that if you don't study uh if, if you don't study history, if you look at the media again, you get no feedback. Also recent, probably two other things. One is recent experiences of the United States and the world, things like Iraq and Afghanistan, of clearly the costs did outweigh the benefits. We did make mistakes. And then look at what's going on. You've got all these domestic demands uh, immediately now dealing with COVID. But even apart from COVID, we had the opioid problem. We have violence issues, infrastructure, public school it's a long list of domestic demands. So I think there's a natural inclination to, to discount the world, to, to turn inward. You remember Tip O'Neill once famously said that all politics begins at home. Well, I think for a lot of people, what matters is either begins at home, but also stays there, stays close to home. And as a result, there's a real discounting of the significance of the world on their fate. Well, so let's flip it around then to not at home, but globalization. You've talked about the problems of globalization. As you look at it, open world economy, trade, uh, connections among people. I mean, do you see this splintering of globalization now occurring and what the risks of that are? Look, let me start where I think you were, which is globalization has brought many good things. You wouldn't know it from a lot of the conversation, but if I look, if you look at the last 70, 75 years, you look at the increase in wealth around the world. You look at the absence of great power conflict. You look at access to information through the internet, the ability to travel, how the average person in the United States lives 10 years longer around the rest of the world. They might live 20 or 30 years longer. Many more you know, countries are independent. Many more people have degrees of freedom. This has been a remarkable, remarkable era of history. It really has been something of a a golden age, yet there's enormous pushback against globalization. Well, in part, some, some of it's understandable. Uh, there are aspects of globalization, including infectious diseases, which are anything but benign. Uh, or there's computer viruses, which are anything but benign. Or there's certain types of drugs. I refer to 9-11, terrorists who got here. So there's many manifestations of globalization that are problematic. The problem is there's lots of good things, including trade, uh, business, the free flow of ideas, and so forth. And the challenge, it seems to me, is how do you push back against the bad part of globalization without throwing the baby out with the, with the proverbial bathwater? And that's, a, or to put it another way, globalization's a reality. But, but what's a choice? That's about policy. So we want to keep terrorists out, but we want to keep and retain really talented people in this country. That's called the smart immigration policy. So to have an either-or approach, 
to inward coming travel seems to me crazy. We need to have a discriminating approach. Do you, do you think you, you talked about the virus, COVID, uh, do you, are there lessons about how the world has handled COVID uh, that sure. when you look at it? A couple of things. One is, let me take a couple of different lessons. Let me, let me sort of start though with maybe an odd one that people don't expect. What's so interesting, if you look at how countries have fared, it doesn't break down along the nature of the system. By that, I mean, there's been successful democracies. Some of the countries in Asia, the New Zealand's, Australia's, Japan, South Korea's, Germany, whatever. And there's been democracies that have failed. <clears throat> the United States, Brazil, India. You have successful authoritarian systems. China has gotten ahead of things after a terrible start. Vietnam's been remarkably successful. Then you've got the Iran's and the Russia's. So it's really interesting to me. It's all about the leadership, not about the nature of the, the system. Second of all, the World Health Organization clearly failed early on. The it's another example of how the institutional machinery of the world is inadequate to the task. China did not meet its obligations early on uh, in, uh, under the international health regulations. It shows how there's still a real tension in the world between sovereign rights and sovereign obligations. And we haven't sorted that, uh, that out. Uh, there wasn't sufficient sharing of critical equipment. We're going to have an interesting test, though, coming up then, which is this question of vaccine production, dissemination, funding, and so forth. And an interesting question will be, can the world come up with an approach to dealing with vaccines and therapeutics and sharing test, uh, tests and so forth, where there really is a, a, a genuine sharing? And at the moment, I'd simply say we're not there. We're in fact, maybe going in the opposite direction right now. Well, we do see though that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel with a vaccine uh, dissemination by spring or summer. Something else that we see is a new administration in Washington. Uh, when you look at the incoming Biden administration, what do you see as the kind of the major foreign policy challenges that it will be facing? Well, the first thing to say, there's a lot of foreign policy challenges. They are, it's one hell of an inbox. It begins, I think, with a lot of the domestic pressures beginning with COVID-19. We're not gonna have the bandwidth to deal with a lot of the world if we can't get on top of this virus at home. The economy will not get going. So we may not think of a pandemic as a national security challenge, but it really is. And then again, you've got various manifestations of great power challenge, different, fundamentally different ones from Russia and China. And then you've got the problem countries, places like North Korea, Iran, Venezuela. And then you've got these global issues like climate. So again, it's an extraordinary uh, inbox facing the new administration. Well, let, well, let's start with China. You know, the attitudes towards China, relations with China are very different from when you were in the State Department. How to manage the challenge, China? How, if you were there or, you know, what to do, how to approach it? Look, it's tough because again, we, you asked me a few minutes ago about history. The history of the Cold War doesn't help us so much with China. It's a very different kind of challenge than was the Soviet Union because China is so economically powerful and economically integrated. So a lot of the lessons of the Cold War, I think, do not particularly apply. And I think the challenge for American foreign policy is how do you push back against China where we need to? 
over what they're doing, say, uh, in the South China Sea or what they might do with the Taiwan, what they're doing in Hong Kong or with the, Uyghur, the Muslim Uyghur minority and so forth, or the theft of intellectual property. How do we push back where it's warranted? But how do we do so in a way that, one, does not lead to a conflict, and two, doesn't preclude the possibility of cooperation, say, on climate or, say, on, um, on something like global health or on a North Korea, where it's obviously in our interest that the two of us do cooperate. That's a real challenge for foreign policy. It's so much easier when you have a one-dimensional relationship, but to have a relationship with multiple dimensions is a, is a much more difficult foreign policy so statecraft are you, challenge. are you optimistic or pessimistic about the ability to deal with this? Look, That's the last not an unfair years, question. Think, well, look, the last few years, the relationships deteriorated. I would actually argue more because of China. I would argue that this China, Xi Jinping's China, is a very different China, say, than Deng Xiaoping's China. Uh, this is no. This is the China that's no longer hiding its hand, no longer biding its time. Much more forceful, much more capable. Uh, so I think that's simply a reality. I think the big difference with the Biden administration will be that it will approach China through or with allies, particularly in Europe and in Asia, whether it's on issues of technology transfer, or on human rights, or on China's uh, strategic behavior. And I think that has a better chance of, uh, of, of succeeding. I also don't think, unlike the current administration, they'll, put a, they'll be as publicly critical of such things as the role of the Communist Party. I think there'll be more of a realist approach saying, look, how you organize yourself is your business. We may not approve of it, but this is, this is your business. What we're going to focus on is your behavior, uh, which is a much more traditional foreign policy uh, priority. And I think that has a better chance of working. You mentioned working with allies rather than separately on China. Uh, you spend a lot of time and have a lot of interaction with our allies at different levels of government and uh, private sector. Uh, how do our traditional allies see the United States now? <laughs> uh, many of them, particularly in Europe, to some extent in Asia, are dismayed. Quite honestly, they get up in the morning and they see things and they shake their heads because this is not the, the United States they knew or thought they knew. So they are concerned about that. And even the election, which most of our traditional allies, not all, but most welcomed the result. Uh, they're worried because there's a, not simply over the president's pushing back and the violation of norms and the rest, but rather the sense that 70 million Americans voted for someone who was so outside the general mainstream of American foreign policy uh, of the last uh, 75 years, they're worried what this might portend for the future. In a funny sort of way, a lot of our allies don't know what's the norm and what's the aberration. And as the next four years, which kind of looks like a return to the past, uh, is, that, is that something that can be taken for granted going forward or just the opposite? Is the Biden administration likely to be a one-term phenomenon? And then we return to some version of Trumpism with or without the man. So what this has done, it's injected a great degree of uh, uncertainty. And I think you're going to see a degree of hedging behavior on the part of America's allies in Europe and Asia. But also, I don't mean to be too critical or negative. They'll still work with us on a lot of issues on dealing with Russia, dealing with China, maybe dealing with uh, an Iran. The place where you won't find a sense of relief on American allies will be in some countries in the Middle East. You know, some of the countries in particular, like Israel, or I'm not sure how one would classify Saudi Arabia or some other countries, 
were there, uh, many of these traditional friends will be quite wary of the new administration, either because of its emphasis on human rights or its approach to Iran. So let's let's focus then on the Middle East. You've spent a lot of your life, you, when you were on the National Security Council, uh, you were in charge of senior director for the Middle East. You've written a great deal about it. How do you see that map changing? Well, I think the first thing to say is the map doesn't bear a one-to-one correlation with the reality. Uh, Mr. Rand and Mr. McNally have a lot of work to do. <laughs> they want to catch up to the Middle East. If you look what's going on, certainly uh, not just between and among countries, but within them. What's so interesting to me about the Middle East now is you have any number of failed and weak states, Yemen, Syria, Libya are all one degree or another failed states. Then you've got Lebanon and others that are weak states. Uh, so the map in some ways doesn't capture the justice, doesn't do justice to the, uh, to the reality of the, uh, of the Middle East. And then you've got you know, all the challenges uh, posed by Iran, which is anything but a status quo power. You've got all sorts of non-state actors around the uh, region. Look, the Middle East has been for, for decades the least settled and in many ways the least successful part of the world by virtually any measure of success, economic, if you subtract out oil and gas, if you look at measures of, of social development. I don't see that changing anytime soon, I'm sorry to say. What do you see? What do you think Iran's objectives are in the region? I would describe Iran as an imperial power. And let me just be clear what I mean in the sense that they want to have a role, they want to have a sway that transcends the borders of Iran. And they obviously want to have tremendous influence in places like um, Syria, uh, like, like Lebanon. Uh, they want to be first among equals in that part of the world. They want a degree of deference uh, uh, towards them. So I think Iran is a real challenge because, again, they're not a status quo country and they've got a lot of tools at their, uh, at their discretion whether it's the Hezbollahs, their own willingness to use terrorism, they've got a capable uh, military. I think they're, they're constrained to some extent now by internal political divisions, and they're clearly constrained uh, by American uh, sanctions. But Iran, again, Iran is a real force to be reckoned with in, uh, in, in the region, I would argue. Do you, would you, I mean, what do you think the odds are of reinstating some kind of nuclear deal? I would say there's, a, there's some chance. I don't think, let me put it this way. I don't know if it will be formalized. I, I, I don't know if we'll go back to 2015. What I don't think you can have, which I don't think you will have, is a totally unregulated Iran in the nuclear space. So whether there's a formal deal or a de facto arrangement, interim or otherwise, I think there will be certain understandings, implicit red lines about what Iran is permitted to do uh, or there will one or another uh, neighbor will take action. You mentioned Russia, of course, uh, a little earlier among the challenges. It sometimes seems that our major way of dealing with Russia is with sanctions. Do you see any path there uh, to stabilize that relationship? It's going to be very hard since I think Mr. Putin gets up in the morning and in his worldview, what we represent are kind of liberalism, uh, in the traditional classic sense of the word, he sees as a threat to Russia and more important to his rule over Russia. Uh, and, it, and with an administration, the new administration in the United States, which is going to put more of an emphasis on political and democratic promotion, on human rights, 
I actually think the friction between the United States and Russia there will heat up. Mr. Mr. Trump essentially gave Mr. Putin a pass on those on those uh, matters. But I also think the new administration will be businesslike. So I think uh, you'll ha hopefully have a new an extension of the New START nuclear agreement. I think there'll be regular diplomacy, not the kind of necessarily personal diplomacy that we saw with uh, Trump and Putin, but more the kind of stuff that has been the norm for for decades. Whether we're not going to reach any accommodation with Russia, but but uh, but I'm hoping we can just calm the relationship. Some things we're just going to have to do around Russia, strengthen uh, NATO and so forth. Also, quite honestly, Russia has its hands full a little bit. With some of the things going on in its its neighborhood, some of the challenges at home, uh, they're 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 quite extended in places like the the Middle East. But I I, I don't see any breakthroughs uh, in the relationship. Uh, certainly not for better, and hopefully not for worse. Right. Well, let me turn to some of the global issues that you talk about in the latter uh, part of uh, the world. Uh, one, of course, is uh, climate and how to approach climate on an international basis. And I think you have some approaches in your mind that are different from what's being pursued now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Paris, the whole structure of that is basically each country essentially sets its own ambitions. And then you add it all up and you see what you got. And the problem is that you look at the ambitions and you add it up and it's inadequate. So one approach for the future is essentially Paris 2.0, however you want to describe it, where countries would agree to lay out more ambitious uh, timetables and goals for themselves when it comes to reducing emissions. That's possible, but I just don't see that will ever get us to where we need to go. I have zero confidence in that. Now, could there be technology breakthroughs in the rest? Sure. Uh, but you can't, though, base your policy on, on, on a hope for breakthroughs. Uh, I, I think in the United States, you'll probably see greater uh, efforts on uh, regulation. And, and that's one, I think a big part of this is going to be regulatory policy on the part of governments around the world. I think the United States and Europe and so will be ahead of uh, others uh, in that. To me, the most interesting area for creative thinking is going to be in the realm of trade and whether in the future certain trade agreements, and I would hope, though, again, I'm not wildly optimistic on this, the United States would rethink its relationship with what, what, what was the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, the CPTPP, and we would enter such a group. And then over time, such a group would adopt climate criteria and basically say, if you want to export into us, you have to meet certain climate related standards. If you can't, you'll have to uh, you'll be subject to a tariff that will make your goods less competitive in our, our space. But my own view, that might be one of the critical ways to address climate. So rather than I think we actually need a whole different mindset. So rather than thinking about a top down universal wants concentrated approach to climate, which I think we've been thinking of for decades, whether it's Copenhagen, cap and trade, carbon taxes, Paris, I think we're going to have to think of a much more uh, a multifaceted approach, more ground up, some national, some various kinds of multilateral, some done through trade, some done through science and new technologies. But I think the approach to climate is going to, is going to be very different if it's going to succeed. It needs to be very different. Mm -hmm. You talk about it in terms of trade, and maybe that's a larger question about trade itself, the hostility towards uh, open borders and trade. There's what seems to be a rise of protectionism, and that's a major theme you take up in the book as well, and clearly you're thinking about it. Um, 
why the why the hostility towards trade? I think it has a bit to by, do by with trade. The, I should say international trade. Of yeah, course, I think to some extent it's structural, and it's this: uh, on balance, uh, societies benefit from trade. Hence, the theory of comparative advantage: costs are lower, qualities better, and all that. The problem is there are some losers from trade. Now, it could be an individual factory or worker, jobs disappear. Now, increasingly, when factories close, jobs disappear. It's not because of trade, it's because of productivity enhancements. But that's not widely understood. By and large, trade is held as the culprit. And those who lose from trade or think they are losing from trade bring to the political space far more intensity than those who benefit from trade. So even though far more people in a society tend to benefit from trade, either as consumers or people whose jobs are tied to exports, those who perceive that they lose from trade, again, bring much greater intensity, are much more active and have, a, have an outsized voice. We've also done a really poor job in our society at helping people deal not just with trade uh, and job loss linked to that, but with new technologies. I mean, reskilling has to become a major, major uh, commitment of a society, lifelong education, and all the things you need, portable safety net. And I, don't, I simply don't think we have done a good job uh, preparing, I'll speak for the United States, preparing or getting this society tooled up, so to speak, for dealing with living in a global economic, uh, innovative, competitive uh, space. And unless we do, there's going to continue to be pushback against trade. Can I say one other thing, by the way, sorry to go on so long. I also think there may be a new push against trade because of supply chain issues that coming out of COVID and other experiences, more and more countries, more and more governments may say, we can't afford to be so vulnerable to this or that supply chain potential disruption. Therefore, what we're going to have to do is, among other things, have more domestic mandated production. Problem is, if every country on its own decides to go down the path of domestic mandated production, it's called import substitution. Right. It's called it's the kind of stuff you and I studied 50 years ago. It's called protectionism. So that if we do go down that path at all, I really would argue it's essential it be coordinated within the WTO. It can't just be done unilaterally. Well, I think it's already happening on this. It's not something that will happen. It's already happening for COVID reasons and also for geopolitical reasons. Absolutely. So let me um, pick up two other themes in the book. And I was going to ask them as two separate questions, but I think they may go together. Uh, you write about the challenge of cyber and then there are the challenges that come from what we might call the future of war or warfare, how that's changing. And like to your reflections on those two things and how you see them. What they have in common is that history suggests there's always a lag between the innovation of new technologies and the ability of the world to kind of get a handle on it, to regulate it, if in fact it needs uh, regulating. So, the, you know, so with the internet, the digital space, that's been around for several decades now, and look how unregulated it is. You know, my comparison, and maybe glib, is to the American, the Wild West. We've got a lot of people on horses carrying guns and no sheriff. That's pretty much to me what cyberspace is. Now, can we get some rules uh, about such things as non-interference and political processes of others? I don't know, but that's one area to look at. Can we get rules that, that are, will be respected or enforceable about 
uh, protection of intellectual property, obviously more difficult. But uh, my point is simply, it's uh, at the moment a wildly unregulated space and regulating it will prove extraordinarily difficult because the costs of entry are so easy, so small. There's so many players. Unlike you know, the nuclear race, where there's only a handful, you have billions of participants in, 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 in cyberspace. And often it's very hard to track them down and attribute where something is coming from. So I'll be honest with you, I am not wildly optimistic about the chances of uh, regulating it successfully. So it puts a tremendous premium on things like protection, redundancy, and all that, how to make yourself less vulnerable to, uh, to uh, disruption or espionage or, or, or what have you. And then you're getting at things like robotics, AI, and so forth. But that's going to have profound implications, not just for competition and for production, and so forth, both in the manufacturing side, but also the services side. Uh, but it's also going to have tremendous implications for the future of warfare. And there, the technology is ahead, not only of international arrangements, in some cases, domestic arrangements, but it's also ahead of our thinking. We're not even sure in some cases what it is we want to regulate or how we'd even go about it. Building consensus is a different issue. We're not even sure what what's what are the constructs we want. Uh, it's an actually it's a really interesting area where I think there's a role for people in academia and outside think tanks and so forth because governments around the world are playing catch up. But again, it's it's part of this larger phenomena that we're in this age of history where in almost every realm the challenges are outrunning the arrangements, and many of the arrangements are now getting old in the tooth, long in the tooth. Ones that came after World War II. And another, the, again, the technology, the dynamics of our age are, it's all happening at an incredible pace. And politics, by comparison, is relatively glacial. Just one final thought. The, um, your book, The World, is a very compact book. How difficult was it to write this book compared to the other books? <laughs> this is different for me. It was different and difficult in part because it's a primer. I've never written a primer before, what the British call a primer. And hopefully someone will explain to me why the British call it a primer and we call it a primer. Uh, when you say tomato, I say tomato. That's one. There we go. Uh, so I can't, uh, it was very, because when you write a book like this, you can't write a book with a subtitle, a brief introduction and have it, you know, have it be a thousand pages. <laughs> uh, so the, the hardest thing in a book like this is thinking about what's essential and what's not. And what makes it even harder is you can't assume anything. I wrote this book for people who don't do what people like you and I have done for, for our lives. Uh, people are busy with doing other things, with personal things. So I try to not assume tremendous background. And I, I thought really hard about what to exclude. So what I did was I put in, here's the essential history I, I think you need. Here's the, uh, an introduction to the principal regions of the world. Here's an introduction to the 10 global issues that I think will define our time. And here are some of the basic concepts that will help you connect the dots about how the world uh, works. So when, when you write a book like this, you have to constantly put it on a diet and take things out, which is, as you know, it's never easy for authors to uh, edit themselves. Uh, but in this case, it was... Uh, it was must, but it did go through. Interesting enough, it went through more drafts than any book I've ever written. 
because in some ways it was the most challenging book I've ever I've ever tried to write. Well, it's a great contribution. It's also a great read. And so I think people would find it, whatever their degree of knowledge uh, and engagement with the world is, would find it a very valuable book to read. Richard, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today about the world. Uh, we've had a brief introduction to the world, a brief introduction, but we've covered uh, key issues. Uh, that, and I think that key phrase that you said, the challenges that are outrunning the arrangements and that is uh, the whole host of global issues that are on the table will be needed to deal, deal with. And people need to be, as you say, uh, publics need to be globally literate to deal with them. So Richard Haas, thank you very much for joining us. And we wish you and the council uh, great success in your very important and always timely work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan, and you and everyone else, please stay safe, safe and well. Thank you. Uh, we've been talking with Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you for joining us for this Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market.